Chapter Four, Part Ten of the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume Ten, Ingersoll's Closing Address to the Jury in the Second Star Root Trial, Part Ten of Twenty Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by William Jones. Part Ten. Now, with all these contradictions upon his head, I will now come to the affidavit of July thirteenth, eighteen eighty-two. You will remember that I read you the letter of July fifth, in which he says that Bosler got him to make the affidavit of eighteen eighty-one. At page twenty-three seventy-four, Rodell gives an account of this affidavit. Dorsey got him in Willard's hotel, locked the door, and had him. Now he said to him, Mr. Rodell, I will tell you what I am going to do with you. I am going to have you prosecuted for perjury. Let us imagine that conversation. Rodell replies, What are you going to have me prosecuted for? For making the affidavit of June 1881. Why, says Rodell, in that affidavit, I swore you were innocent. Says Dorsey, don't you know you swore to a lie? Do you think I would stand a lie of that kind, sir? Do you think I will allow any man willfully, maliciously, and with malice aforethought to swear that I am an innocent man? I will have you arrested tonight, sir. Well, says Rodell, my good God, ain't there any way I can get out of this? Yes, make another affidavit just like it. Now, sir, you have perjured yourself, and I will arrest you for perjury unless you do it again. Well, says Rodell, when I get that done, you will have two cases against me. I can't help it, Dorsey says. Is that the way you treat a friend? I swore to that lie from pure friendship. Don't you remember that you took me by both hands and begged me, for God's sakes, and for your wife's sake and your children's sake, to make that affidavit? And now you are going to be such a perfect devil as to have me arrested for perjury for making that same affidavit? Dorsey says, Yes, sir, that is the kind of man I am. Well, but says Rodell, don't you know the trial is going on now? They are trying to prove now that you are guilty, and in that affidavit of mine I swore you are innocent. And how are you going to prove a man guilty when you swear that he is innocent? Dorsey says, that is my business, not yours. I am going to have you arrested. But, says Rodell, you had better hold on, I tell you, why, I have got the red book that I got in New York, Dorsey says. I don't care. Burdell says, I have got the pencil memorandum that you made for me to open the books upon and charge William Smith with $18,000. And you wrote John Smith first, and I changed it to Sam Jones. Don't you recollect? As otherwise there would be two Smiths and there is the account against J. H. Mitchell and J. W. D., and cash and profit and loss. Dorsey says, 
I don't care about that. I am not going to allow a man to commit perjury. I am going to have you arrested. Mordell says, You'd better not have me arrested. Torsey says, Why? What else have you got? I have got a copy of the letter that you wrote to Bosler on the 13th of May, 1879, which you say that you paid $20,000 to Thomas J. Brady. That copy was made by Miss Nettie L. White. Do you believe I care anything about that? You have perjured yourself, and it is no difference to me whether it was in my favor or not. Justice must be done, and I am going to have you arrested. Rodale says you had better not. I have got a tabular statement in your handwriting, Dorsey, where you had a column for the amount due and the amount received, and another column for thirty-three and one-third percent given to Brady, and then at the top, in your handwriting, T.J.B. thirty-three and one-third. Dorsey says, I don't care what you've got. Rodell says, That ain't all I have got, Dorsey. I tore out of your copy book a copy of the letter I wrote to Bosler on the 21st or 22nd of May, 1880, in which I told him that I had gone to Brady, and that Brady said you were a damn fool for keeping a set of books, and suggested to me to have some copies made. And I had the copies made, and I can prove the copies by Gibbs if he does not try not to remember that he made them. Now, go on with your rat-killing. Go on with your perjury suit. Dorsey had him already locked up there, don't you see? But Dorsey was bent on having that man arrested for perjury because he had sworn that he, Dorsey, was innocent. Dorsey was implacable. What else was he to do? He put his hand in his pocket and said, Do you see those letters to that woman? Then, sir... When he saw the handwriting, he was like that other gentleman that saw the handwriting on the wall. And he began to get weak in the knees, and says, Dorsey, I hope you are not going to have me arrested for perjury. I am willing to do it again, right now, on the same subject. Now it turns out that at that time Dorsey did not have those letters. Dorsey swears that he never got those letters until after Rodell was put on the stand. And after he swore that, the government had a woman to whom the letters were written subpoenaed. Why did they not place her on a stand? That is for you to answer, gentlemen. That is the affidavit of July 13. Recollect, there was a trial going on at the time in which Dorsey was insisting that he was innocent, and although Burdell had sworn that he was, he was going to have him arrested right off. What else did he have against Dorsey at that time? Now, says Rodell, Dorsey, don't you have me arrested for perjury. I have got a memorandum of that mining stock that was to be given to McGrew and Tyner and Turner and Lilly for corrupt purposes. What else did he have? After he had agreed to make the affidavit, Dorsey wrote out what he wanted him to swear to in pencil and gave it to him. And when he got his liberty, he walked out of the room a free citizen. 
he had all the papers i have spoken of not only but he had in his possession a draft in dorsey's handwriting of the affidavit dorsey wanted him to make he made the first affidavit from friendship the second from fright you know he never took a dollar for an affidavit he was not that kind of man you might get around him by talking friendship or you might scare him but you could not bribe him he wasn't that kind of man armed with all these papers he was frightened so he made the affidavit of july thirteenth now let us see he admits that i will not say every word but the principal things in the affidavit of june eighteen eighty one are false he swore to them knowing them to be false but he tried to get out by saying he did not write them all writing is not the crime the crime is swearing that they were true when they were not it does not make any difference who wrote it for instance you swear to an affidavit and you afterwards say i did not write it well did you know the contents yes did you swear to it yes what difference does it make who wrote it and yet he endeavors to get behind that breastwork and say i did not write all that affidavit i only wrote part of it what i wrote was true but what i swore to was not that will not do so the affidavit of july eighteen eighty two he now swears was a lie but he gives a reason for writing that that you know is utterly perfectly completely false you know that dorsey never threatened to have him arrested for perjury because he had sworn in favor of dorsey you know it and all the eloquence and all the genius of the world could not convince you that at that time burdell was afraid that dorsey would have him arrested for perjury no sir now let us take the next step mr burdell testified on page twenty two seventy five that this letter thirty two x was received by him in due course of mail in eighteen seventy eight upon being asked whether he did not know that s w dorsey was here in washington at that time he replied that he knew he was not i will read it to you gentlemen chico springs post office mountain spring ranch colfax county new mexico april third eighteen seventy eight m c burdell eleven twenty one i street dear burdell i wish you would get fullest information in regard to all the new post office lettings and keep posted as to the schemes going on in the department there are certain routes we want advertised and others we do not i shall be in washington as soon as the twelfth unless something unexpectedly happens faithfully dorsey question what dorsey was that answer that is s w dorsey's handwriting question and signature answer yes sir this is where he first speaks of it at the time that letter was introduced or in a little time gentlemen they also introduced the envelope 
I do not know that I should have suspected the letter if they had not introduced the envelope. Whenever there is an effort to make a thing too certain, I always suspect it. When that Maury letter was gotten up, what made me suspect it was that they had the envelope. And I said to myself, why did they want the envelope if it was clearly in the handwriting of Garfield? What difference did it make whether it was sent to Maury or to someone else? What difference did it make when it came from Washington? The only question was, did Garfield write it? And upon that subject, the envelope threw no light. When a man feels weak and thinks that other people will know what he does not want them to know, then it is that he wants to barricade and strengthen before the attack. So they got up this envelope, and when I looked at that, it did not look to me as if the stamp had been through the mail. I noticed the handwriting of Chico Springs, New Mexico, and then I noticed three or the B on the postage stamp, and then I knew that the man who wrote Chico Springs never made the letter or figure on that stamp. It is utterly impossible for the man who wrote that Chico Springs to make that mark upon the stamp. This stamp looked awfully clean, and I said, well, I wouldn't wonder if that was an envelope used here in the city which had been got through the mail in some way. They had it stamped on the back, and I said, perhaps that was written in 1879. No. You see, if it was not written in 1879, it did not do any harm, because in 1879 Dorsey was not a member of the Senate. Having gone out on the 4th of March, 1879, that letter was dated in April, 1879. Why then, there was no harm in his writing to Mr. Rodell and telling him to look after the mail business. But if it was written on the 3rd of April, 1879, it went far to show that Dorsey was personally interested at that time in mail routes. You will notice the printed date, April 3rd, 1878. They introduced that letter. I noticed that the envelope was a funny-looking thing, and that the writing on it did not correspond with the mark on the stamp. I noticed also that upon the back they had the stamp. I do not know how they got it. When the post office department has possession of a paper, they can put almost anything on it. When I said to Mr. Rodell on cross-examination, not knowing anything about the letter, was that not written in 1879? He said, no, sir. Said I, don't you know, as a matter of fact, that Dorsey was not here on the 3rd of April, 1879? He said, as a matter of fact, I know that he was here on the 3rd of April, 1879. Don't you know, as a matter of fact, that he was here on the April 3rd of 1879? He says, as a matter of fact, that he was not here on the 3rd of April, 1878. He was at Chico Springs. He knew, as a matter of fact, 
that he was here on 1879, and he swore so as to preclude the possibility of his having written the letter in 1879. And he swore to the positive fact that he was not here on the 3rd of April, 1878, so as to show that he wrote him that letter from Chico Springs. They wanted some letter from Dorsey in 1878 to show that he was personally interested in these reads while in the Senate. They submitted that letter to Mr. Boone, who was their witness. He looks at it, and he tells you that Dorsey did not write that letter. A clear forgery. Well, whom else do they bring now? They leave it right there, and by that admit that Burdell forged that letter. Mr. Boone, their witness, swears it. Nobody swears to the contrary except Rurdell. Boone threw the letter from him contemptuously and said, That is not Dorsey's handwriting. And they dare not bring another witness. The country is filled with experts, gentlemen, who know about handwriting. The United States had plenty of men and plenty of money, and they never brought a solitary man. Now, gentlemen, do you want to know how this fellow got caught? I will tell you. There is the letter, and they dare not put a man on the stand to swear that it is in Dorsey's handwriting. Look at it all over. But I want to tell you how Rodale got caught about Dorsey's being present on the 3rd of April, 1878 and I might as well tell you how I found it out. I do not want to pretend to be any more ingenious than I am. I found it out because I made the same mistake myself. I stumbled on that same route. I hit my toe of heedlessness on the same obstruction. I went to look at the Senate Journal. I opened a book to see whether Dorsey was here on the 3rd of April, 1878. You will see at the bottom, there on the title page, Mr. Foreman, Washington, Government Printing Office, 1877. You know I was not looking for the book of 1877, so I shut the book up. Then I took the next book and opened it, and it said, at just the same place, Washington, Government Printing Office, 1878. I thought it was the book. So I looked over here, and I found that there was no session of the Senate in April. And I said to myself, Is that possible, that there was no session in April of 1878? Why, there must have been. But the book said no. I looked back, and it still said 1878. Then I happened to look back to this book that said 1877, and it said that the session commenced December 3rd, 1877, and consequently April 3rd would be found in the book marked 1877 on the title page. So I turned right over here and looked up at the top and saw the date, April 3rd, 1878. He was looking for the 1878 book, and that included April 1879, and when he got to April 1879, there was no session of the Senate, so he came right 
in here and swore that dorsey was not here in eighteen seventy eight but that he was here in april eighteen seventy nine i looked in that book and found that mr dorsey on the third of april eighteen seventy eight was appointed by the vice president on a committee of conferees on the part of the senate together with senators windowen and beck and i saw exactly how mr wardell made his mistake he opened the book and at the bottom of the title page it said eighteen seventy seven but that was not what he was looking for he was looking for eighteen seventy eight and the book that said eighteen seventy eight showed that in april the senate was not in session the book that said eighteen seventy seven showed that in april the senate was in session on april third eighteen seventy eight that man thought he was backed by the records of the senate and thereupon he manufactured that letter and that is the letter sworn by boone not to be in the handwriting of s w dorset now gentlemen there is nothing in this world that a man would be prevented from doing for its baseness who would do that there is more evidence than this i asked mr burdell when you got that letter did you understand it he said no did you do anything on account of it no did you know what it meant no and yet he has the temerity to swear that he received that on the third of april eighteen seventy eight how did he come to spell the name Riddell? i will tell you on page twenty two seventy five he had a letter to go by that is the very page in which the government puts in that letter this letter is a letter of introduction when Burdell manufactured that letter he had this letter of introduction to go by honorable j l rout denver my dear governor i wish to introduce my friend mr m c reddell it was written reddell in that letter and when this man wanted to manufacture one he had one in his possession that dorsey wrote about that time april fourteenth eighteen seventy nine and he noticed that in that he had spelled the name reddell so when he wanted to get up a fraud he spelled the name reddell that is the way there was no pretense that dorsey wrote that letter and they dare not bring in an expert or another man on earth acquainted with the handwriting of dorsey and submit it to him and expect him to say that it was the handwriting of s w dorsey so much for that now it is claimed that while tory was writing up dorsey's books having in his possession the check stubs he was uncertain as to whether a charge was twenty-five dollars or twenty-five cents and he thereupon sent to rodell to ascertain the true state of the account so that he might open his books thereupon rodell made the calculation in the evidence marked ninety-four x and donnelly wrote under it that it was right donnelly made that little certificate at the bottom here is the important paper submitting ninety-four x to the jury another piece manufactured out of wool cloth not wool paper 
Now I ask a few questions about this. In the first place, they knew that unless this was corroborated, it was good for nothing. And we find on it Lewis Johnson and Company. Note due 28th October, $3,000. Was that note at Lewis Johnson and Company? Why did they not bring some of the officers of that bank, if there was such a note for $3,000 there? But no one was brought, and yet they knew that everything coming from Rodell must be corroborated. If Rodell had come to Donnelly to find what the account was, how did it happen to be in Rodell's handwriting before it got to Donnelly? Donnelly wrote this certificate at the bottom. Rodell had written all the facts before. If he went to Donnelly to get the facts, how did Rodell happen to write this before it got to Donnelly? It is like me wanting to get some information out of a man and writing the information before going to him. Now, if Donnelly wrote that after Rodell had written, where did Rodell get the information? If Donnelly had the books, Donnelly should have given the information. If Rodell had the books, why did he want to go to Donnelly for information? And if Donnelly had the books, how did Rodell write the information before he went to Donnelly? Then if he wanted that information for Tory, why did he not send it to him? How does it happen that Rodell wrote out the information for Donnelly, then got Donnelly to certify it, because Tory had asked for it? And then how does it happen that Rodell kept it? It seems to me that that ought to have been sent to Tory. Tory wrote to Rodell for information. Rodell wrote it all down, then got Mr. Donnelly to say it was so. If Donnelly had the books... Donnelly should have given the information. If Rodell had the books, he did not have to go to Donnelly for information. That is another manufactured paper. As I say, how does it happen to be in the possession of Rodell? They claim that it was for Tory's benefit. I believe when Tory was on the stand, they asked him if there was not some dispute about thirty-five cents. Now they bring that here to show that there was a dispute about 25 cents. Was there any reason for supposing that it was 25 cents? No, except that it was in the dollar column. That is all. Of what use was Donnelly's statement after Burdell had made the calculation? Nobody on earth can tell why that was given. Why did they not bring some of the books or clerks from Lewis Johnson and Company's bank to show that there was a note there in October for $3,000? There is another little matter, a conversation between Rodell and Brady. Rodell said he had a conversation with Brady in which he told him about the Congressional Committee, that he was summoned to bring his books. Brady was astonished that Dorsey would be damn fool enough to keep books, and suggested to have them copied. If this is true, Brady at that time made a confidant of Rodell. If it is true, Brady at that same time admitted to Rodell that he, Brady, was a conspirator, that he had conspired with Dorsey, 
and yet Brady says that he never had but three or four conversations, I believe, with this man, and Rodell himself admits that he never had but four or five. And when he is pinned down on cross-examination, he accounts for enough of these interviews, without any interviews on the subject of the books, to exceed all that he ever had. Do you believe that he ever had any such conversation? Do you believe that Brady would make a confidant of him? Do you believe that Brady would substantially admit in his presence that he had been bribed by Dorsey? I do not. Now, in order that you may know what this man is, I want you to have an idea of his character. So we will come to the next point. Mr. Burdell admits that he sat with the defendants during the early part of this trial, that he was willing to make a bargain with the government, that he proposed to the government that he would sit with his co-defendants and would challenge from the jury the friends of the defendants. Did any man wearing the human form ever propose a more corrupt and infamous bargain? That proposition ought to have been written on the tanned hide of a Tewkesbury pauper. He went to the government and deliberately said, Gentlemen, I am willing to make a bargain with you. I am willing to sit with my co-defendants, pretending to be their friend, and, while so pretending, I will challenge their friends from the jury. I will so arrange it that their enemies may be upon the panel. And why do you say that, Mr. Burdell? In order to show my good faith towards the government. He made the first affidavit for friendship, the second for fear, and he made this proposition to show his good faith. There never was a meaner proposition made by a human being under the circumstances than that. He proposed to do it. Mr. Blackmar says that the proposition was rejected, but that does not affect Mr. Rodell. He was willing to carry it out. What more does he swear? He swears that he tried to carry it out. In other words, that although it had been rejected, that made no difference to him. Mr. Blackmar says they would not do it. Burdell swears that he tried to, went right along and did his level best, and if the court had allowed him four challenges, he would have challenged four friends of the defendants from the jury. What more does he admit? That when the court decided that all of us together had only four, he endeavored to challenge one. Why? Because he believed he was a friend of the defendants, because he believed he would be against the prosecution, and he wanted to get the friends of the defendants away. Why? To the end that the defendants might be tried by an enemy. That is what he was trying to accomplish. Let us take another step. That proposition reveals the entire man that takes his hide off that takes his flesh all off, that leaves his heart bare naked. You can see what he is made of, and it shows the workings of his spirit, the motions of his mind, and you see in there a den of vipers. You see entangled, knotted adders, and yet that man is put upon the stand, stamped by the seal of the Department of Justice, and that department says to twelve men, 
here is a gentleman that you can believe. That gentleman proposes to sell out his co-defendants to us, but we would not buy. He is an honorable kind of gentleman, but we would not buy. Interjection by Mr. Merrick. It should be interpolated here, if you will pardon me for a moment, that the government refused to accept Burdell until he himself had pled guilty. Mr. Ingersoll resumes. I understand that. I say now, Mr. Merrick, that I would not for anything in the world on a subject of that kind go the millionth part of an inch beyond the testimony. Although you and I have not been very cordial friends during this trial, and neither have I and Mr. Bliss, yet if I know myself, I would not for anything in this world put a stain upon your reputation, or upon the reputation of either of you, by misstating a word of this testimony. I would not do it. I am incapable of it. I admit that the evidence is that the proposition was rejected but I also insist that the government knew the proposition had been made, otherwise it would not have been rejected. And so I say that after this man had made that proposition, infamous enough to put a blush on the cheek of total depravity, the government put that witness upon the stand, sealed with the seal of the Department of Justice. Now we will go another step. He sat with us from day to day, gentlemen, as you know, went in and out with us as one of the co-defendants. In the meantime, and there is a laughable side even to this infamy, he borrowed money from Vale. He went to him as a co-defendant, as a friend, and said, I want a hundred and forty dollars. I want to buy bread and meat to give me strength, to swear you into the penitentiary. And Vale gave him the money. Would you believe a man like that? You cannot think of a man low enough. You cannot think of a defendant vile enough to be convicted on such testimony. Now we will go another step. He wanted to make that bargain with Mr. Blackmar. Mr. Blackmar swears that he told Mr. Merrick of it, and that Mr. Merrick rejected it. Would have nothing to do with it. At the time, Mr. Woodward had two affidavits of Wardell in his possession, an affidavit of Wardell made in September, supplemented by another affidavit, I believe, of November, that he made in the city of Hartford, covering seventy pages. When Mr. Woodward saw Mr. Wardell sitting with the defendants, pretending to go with them, he, Woodward, had those two affidavits of Wardell in his pocket, did the prosecution know that Rodell had made the two affidavits? I do not say they did, gentlemen. I only go right to the line of evidence. There I stop. Another thing, Mr. Blackmore swears that they had a signal to look at the clock, and that night Rodell would meet him at six or seven o'clock. I have forgotten the hour, but Mr. Blackmore could not sit in his room all the time waiting for him, and so he gave him a certain signal, so that he would know he was to wait that night. Well, then what happened? Then Mr. Wardell came to Mr. Blackmore and gave him written reports. Of what? I do not know. He sat with the defendants. He gave to Mr. Blackmore written reports. 
what were they i do not know what did mr blackmore do with them he handed them to colonel bliss and what did he do with them i do not know did he read them i do not know did he know that they were in the handwriting of mr burdell i do not know that is for you still another point mr bliss after this jury had been impaneled stood before them while burdell was sitting with us as a defendant and said the ranks of the defendants are closed up and he burdell stands before you now as one of the defendants whose testimony meaning the confessions made to mcveigh and to postmaster general james will be accepted by the court and by you and so forth the question arises did mr bliss know at that time that mr woodward had in his pockets two affidavits made by burdell one made in september and the other in november did he know at that time that burdell had given his papers over to mr woodward did he know at that time that he had offered to challenge the friends of the defendants from the paddle and so knowing did he give us to understand that burdell had passed from the influence of the government and was now acting as one of the co-defendants is it possible that mr bliss would furnish burdell with a mask behind which he could gather information from the defendants and sell it to the government for immunity is it possible those were the circumstances i do not say that he knew i do not know gentlemen i do not believe that it is the duty of a government to prosecute its citizens i do not believe that it is the duty of a government to spread a net for one of the people whom it should protect i do not believe in the spy and informer system i believe that every government should exist for the purpose of doing justice as between man and man the mission of a government is to protect and preserve its citizens from violence and fraud the real object of a government is to enforce honest contracts to protect the weak from the strong not to combine against the one not to offer rewards for treachery not to show cold avarice in order that some citizen may have his liberty sworn away the objects of a good government are the sublimest of which the imagination can conceive the means employed should be as pure as the ends are noble and sacred the government should represent the opinions desires and ideals of its greatest its best and its noblest citizens every act of the government should be a flower springing from the very heart of honor a government should be incapable of deceit the department of justice should blow from the scales even the dust of prejudice representing a supreme power it should have the serenity and frankness of omnipotence subterfuge is a confession of weakness behind every pretense lurks cowardice our government should be the incarnation of candor of courage and of conscience that is my idea of a great and noble government 
This ends chapter four, part ten of twenty four.